listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing this morning? That was acceptable. <laughs> man, Josh, that, that, that violin, dude, it's classing up the joint, man. Sounds good. Man, so, hey, I'm Pastor Jason, if you don't know, and I am so glad to see your face this morning. Can I just say that? All your bright and smiling faces, even if I don't know you, I'm glad you're here. Um, man, we are, I want you to know that uh, if this is your first time with us, I want you to know that we are a growing community living out God's radical love. And so we are a small but mighty church in the, in the love of the Lord. Amen. And so we are, we, we're not just the, what the Lord is doing in this place isn't just, he's not just building a church, like we're building a family. We want to do life together and, and support each other and, and all, all things. And so, man, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Um, I, I, I actually have decided to answer the burning question inside all of your minds this morning. Are, are you ready for that? Um, I, I know you came with this like burning question, like a splinter stuck in your brain this morning, like all of you. It's the same one, I know. I, I, there's this question that's like heavy on all of your hearts this morning. And, and you know what? You came to church this morning with a question and you're going to leave with an answer. How about that? Is that good? Okay. So, so the burning question you all came to church with today is, actually, you know what? Let's just say it all together. Ready? On the count of three, let's just say it all together. Ready? One, two, three. Why is the leaning tower of Pisa leaning? Science. Science, exactly. Why I know this was, I just knew you guys had this question. And so why is the leaning tower of Pisa leaning? And before I give you the answer, though, let me just tell you a little bit about it. The leaning tower of Pisa actually took over 130 years to complete. Uh, the construction was interrupted several times by wars and debt, and while engineers worked on solutions to correct this tower's lean. And uh, the leaning tower of Pisa is eight stories tall, actually, and, and it was about, um, uh, it's about the, a third of the size of the Washington Monument. And uh, the lean was first discovered when they uh, had completed the third story. And, and, they, <laughs> and they had to stop construction to figure out how to correct the lean, right? And, and, and like, they needed Dick Ashley on the case, wherever he is, man. Uh, but but uh, they had to stop construction at the third story because they had to, they had to figure out how they were going to correct this lean. And, and they ended up deciding, I think this is hilarious, they ended up deciding that it would be a good idea to build the remaining five stories a little taller on the leaning side. <laughs> right? 
a little taller on the leaning side, like five more stories on top of the three that are le- What are you thinking? Like, sounds good in theory, but I don't know. Well, the trouble is, is that the weight of the remaining stories caused the tower to sink and lean even further. Today, the tower leans about 17 feet off center. 17 feet. Think about that. That's like... Two and a half Shaquille O'Neal's, right? Like, and, and, to answer, <laughs> and to answer the question that you came here dying to know, I know that you did, is that the Leaning Tower of Pisa leans because of the land the foundation was laid on. See, Pisa, if you don't already know, is the name of the town in Italy where the Leaning Tower was built. And the name Pisa actually comes from a Greek word that means marshy land, which could also be referred to as swampland, right? And, but th- they built this giant bell tower on swampy, unstable ground, and they spent year after year trying to correct this lean because they, they built it on unstable ground. And, and in the 1920s, they even injected the foundation of the tower with cement. And to quote them, I, I think um, this is hilarious to me. The, the, to quote them, they said, that stabilized the tower to some extent. <laughs> to some extent? Are you kidding me? Like, the point of all this, I, I know you're like, why are we talking about this? Uh, the point of all this is that the, the ground you lay the foundation of your faith on matters. It matters. Before you lay a brick, before you mix the cement, before you order the marble archways of your faith, you need to have solid ground to build on. And, and today we're starting a new, ser- new, tr- new teaching series called Foundation. And we're going to journey through seven weeks of the foundational elements of what we believe in here at the Mission Redlands. And, and if you're new with us, it's a good day to, to, to be with us because we're just kicking this off. And, and, and these are the elements um, that make up the solid ground in which a firm foundation of faith in God can be built upon. And as we can learn from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, making sure we build on solid ground is like wildly important. <laughs> so I think a good place to begin this journey is by talking about the number one tool we have to learn about God, and that's the Bible. This sacred book, it's not just any book, right? Uh, we tend to think of the Bible in two halves. The, the Old Testament, which is uh, kind of the pre-Jesus part, and the New Testament, which is where Jesus comes on the scene and, and kind of flips everything on its head. And, and, but, but if you break the Bible down, it's actually more than just two sections of one book. It's, it's a c- compilation of several books, letters, manuscripts, songs, and poems penned by many different authors. That's why when we're referencing a part of Scripture and we want you to be able to find it, we say turn to the book 
of Hebrews, not, not the chapter of Hebrews, right? Because in many ways, the Bible isn't just one book, it's several. And, 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 and you know what? A lot of these books aren't even in chronological order, which is just kind of maddening. But, um, but, but I digress. <laughs> Throughout these books, um, many different accounts of people's lives are shared and many different themes arise. And, but, but that being said, the Bible doesn't just convey one, uh, it, it also conveys just one singular story across its many books. And, and we've, we've talked about it recently. The whole of the Bible tells the story of a loving creator who wants to be known in his true nature by his creation. And, and if we compile all the manuscripts, letters, songs, and poems of the Bible together in one place and then compare them to the Bible that we have now, you would notice some remarkable differences. First, and most obviously, the original manuscripts would not have been written in English. <laughs> the original text of the Bible was written in three different languages. It was, some of it was written in Hebrew, some of it was written in Aramaic, and some of it was written in Greek. And, and so the Bible that we hold dear today is a translation of the original biblical text. And as of September 2016, the full Bible has been translated into 636 languages. The New Testament alone into 1,442 languages. And Bible portions or, story, or, or Bible stories have been translated into 1,145 other languages. So at least some portion of the Bible has been translated into 3,223 languages, and that was as of last year, right? Pretty cool. Some translations we have today focus on complete accuracy of the original text, while others focus on capturing the meaning while using modern and easy-to-understand language. Apart from being in a different language, you would also notice that the original manuscripts of the Bible don't have any chapters or numbers or headers that are going to clue you into what you're about to read. Like, um, all of that stuff was added for user convenience in the very, very modern age of 1555. And, um, and while we're on that topic, here's a freebie. While you're reading the Bible it's so important to remember that all of that stuff, the headers, the scripture numbers, the chapters, all of that stuff is man-made. Actually, at my installation service a while back, um, I received a gift of the New Testament with all of the numbers, chapters, and headers removed. And while it makes it a lot more difficult to reference a verse quickly, it it is a completely fresh biblical reading experience because there are so few distractions. And, and I, I really never noticed how, how sometimes that stuff can be distracting. So anyways, that's just a little freebie. But um, <laughs> speaking of man-made, you may, you, you may have noticed a minute ago that I said that the Bible was penned by many different authors. And, 
And uh, that's true. The, the Bible, the books that make up the Bible that we, we have are, 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 were physically written by different people. But here's the thing. We believe deeply that the Bible, the Bible's authorship, it may have been written by humans, but its authorship was divine. We believe that every word of the Bible is the word of God and that the Old and New Testament, as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. So while the books of the Bible may have been penned by humans, we believe that the Bible's inspiration and supervision were verbally directed by God himself. In one of his letters to Timothy, which became the books of, of, of First and Second Timothy, Paul wrote this defining statement about the scriptures. He said in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I love that phrase, breathed out by God, because it completely encompasses what we believe. We believe, believe it or not, that phrase had never been used before until in this letter. And, and so if the whole of Scripture is breathed out by God, and the person who wrote the Scripture down was divinely inspired and verbally uh, supervised by God himself, what does that tell you about this book? What does that tell you about the Bible? It's perfect. It's exactly the way God wanted it to be as it was originally given. Because he was, in the, dri he was the driving force behind it. And so, somehow God was able to divinely inspire and verbally supervise human authors without overriding their personalities, knowledge, background, vocabulary, and writing style. Second Peter puts it this way. Second Peter in chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that none of the scriptures were written by man's free will, but the human authors spoke directly what they had heard from God, and I love this part, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible is exactly what God wanted it to be because he was there carrying the author along every step of the way, inspiring and directing, which brings us to two key words that we need to know when we're discussing the Bible. And, and there are notepads in the seat in front of you um, if you want to write, write these couple of words down or maybe on your iDevice or whatever, but... Um, these two key words that we need to know when we're, when we're talking about the Bible, the first one is inerrant, inerrant, which means without error of any kind, completely error-free, absolutely perfect, flawless. That's what we believe the Bible is here at the mission. In short, just as 
God is absolutely free from all error. So is the word, the Bible. It's, it's a perfect word from a perfect God. And not only is the word of God inerrant, but it's also completely infallible, which is your second word, infallible, which means trustworthy. Trustworthy in the sense that it will never lead you astray. And what is written is completely reliable. Now this doesn't mean that the Word of God isn't confusing sometimes, because we all know that the Bible can be and is confusing sometimes. But the truth is, uh, the Bible's infallibility isn't reliant on human understanding. It's not reliant on human understanding. Opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit to carry us along as we read, just like he carried along the human authors of the Bible, is crucial. So at the mission, we believe that the Bible is completely inerrant, which means without error, and totally infallible, which means trustworthy. But we also believe that the Word of God is living. How many know that, that this book is still living today? How, how, do you really? Okay. How, how, how many still know that this book still speaks today? That there is authority that comes with this book. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give account. We must all give account. The scripture affirms that the word of God is active and living, that it has power, that it has the authority to pierce through the divide uh, and, and uh, pierce through and divide, rather, what is our humanity and what is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who resides in all Christ followers. Another way to say it might be that this book has the authority to separate God's will from our human desires. Hebrews 4 said it in verse 13 when it said this book exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book has the power to expose sin to us that we may not even know was there. This book has the authority to align our soul, spirit, and even our humanity with God the Father, the one whom at the end of days, we will all have to give account to. This book is not only inerrant, it's not, it, it's not only inerrant, it's not only infallible, but it's living, and it carries authority, and it is the ultimate guide for what we as Christ followers believe and the actions we should take. We've been talking a lot about sin and temptation the last couple of weeks, and and I think it's always a good idea to quickly see how Jesus handles things that we may be facing 
in our own lives while noting how it is applicable to what we're discussing today. And so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew chapter 4 gives us the account of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus has been baptized, uh, but this is before he started his ministry and, and uh, even before he's called his disciples. And Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out to the wilderness alone. And, and there Jesus fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights, which ties into the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 days and for 40 nights. And, and Jesus is alone in the wilderness and he's feeling hungry and vulnerable and just as those feelings begin to set in, he gets a very sinister visitor. And so we can pick up the account in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And so let's go ahead and read the account. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these, so- these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What an incredible account that is. I love that. I love how the Bible goes as far to say, to notice that after 40 days and for 40 nights of fasting, Jesus was hungry. Like, he was hungry. And that might seem like a duh moment, but remember, Jesus is fully man and fully God. And and, and he allowed himself to go through and feel everything we feel, even hunger. Jesus had been alone in the wilderness for 40 days and and was hungry and and isolated and feeling vulnerable. And, and, And like he does for me and you today, that's when the devil chooses to kind of just step out of the shadows, right? And, and he wants to confuse us and disrupt us and, and ultimately steer us off the path of God. So Satan slinks in and doesn't ask anything huge of Jesus. He simply says, oh, you're hungry? Oh, 
you poor thing, you, you, aren't, aren't you the son of God? Like, why don't, why don't you just tell these stones to become bread? You know, like, it's, so you can have something to eat, you, you poor deer, right? And Satan goes after Jesus' physical needs and desires. And when he was, and particularly when he was already weak from fasting, but Jesus came there, he didn't come there to eat, he came there to fast, and he was not going to let the devil throw him off course. So he responds in verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So since that didn't work, the devil took his game up a notch, right? And, 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 he, and he goes after Jesus' pride. He goes after Jesus' pride in verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you should strike your foot against the stone. And Did you notice the devil kind of changed his tactic right there? Like, and so far, both times, he's tried to plant seeds of doubt into Jesus' mind that he isn't actually the Son of God. But this time, the devil quotes, or actually, I should say, misquotes Scripture, did you know that the devil knows the Bible? I mean, did you know that? He does. And he's the master of twisting it to making you think it means one thing and then acting on the wrong meaning. He's the master of it. And, and, and here's the perfect example of that. Satan blatantly misuses Psalm 91 in an effort to manipulate Jesus. But Jesus isn't having that, right? He, he, Jesus again re responds and says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil goes as, go, has gone after Jesus' physical needs and his pride, but Jesus hasn't budged, right? Not even a little bit. Even though he's in a physically weakened state, so the devil in one last stitch effort pulls out all the stops, right, and, and tries to get Jesus to simply take a shortcut around the plan that, the, that God the Father has for him. Just simply sidestep. Just take a shortcut. The devil says in 8 and 9 again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give, I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. See, temptation, see, with temptation, the devil uh, doesn't always try to get you to fall hard right away. The hard fall starts with a small compromise from what the Lord has asked you to do. The hard fall starts with a small compromise of what the Lord has asked you to do. After the resurrection in Matthew 28, Jesus said himself that all authority in heaven and on earth was given him. Jesus had to go to the cross first, though, because that was the Father's perfect plan for the salvation of mankind. And Satan, in verses 8 and 9, is trying to get Jesus to sidestep the road to the cross by offering the kingdoms of the earth to him now, the devil's like, Jesus, spare yourself all this agony. 
you, you can have the, your throne upon the earth right now. Like, all you have to do is just bow down before me. And you can save yourself a lot of heartache and trouble. The, the devil's just trying to get Jesus to simply compromise and sidestep the plan that God has for his life. But Jesus says in his infinite wisdom, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then there are five really important biblical words that follow Jesus' response to Satan's last temptation, and they're this. Then the devil left him. Then the devil left him. He had no foothold so let me just make a couple of quick observations real quick, and, and then we're done. Worship team, you can, you can come on up. Um, earlier we were talking about the authority that the Bible holds, and, and there is something really key about that in this account of the temptation of Jesus. Each time the enemy tried to tempt Jesus, what did you notice about the way Jesus responded? Each time he responds with the phrase, it is written. It is written. Jesus doesn't respond by telling the devil no or, or hey man, get out of here, or, shoo. You know, like he, he, he responds with the word. He responds by quoting scripture. And did you notice that each time each time, all three times, the devil has no comeback. Like, he's completely shut down. Talk about authority, right? He's completely shut down to the point at the third time he leaves. Talk about authority. The word has it in spades. If it was good enough for Jesus... Shouldn't it be good enough for me and you? But we have to know it. We have to be in it. And not only know it, but obey it as a guide to all our beliefs and actions. Jesus is the perfect example of that in this case. Because he knew what the Bible said, and he obeyed it. The devil was unable to get Jesus to budge because Jesus was firmly rooted in the Word. But the biblical knowledge we hold isn't enough on its own. We have to apply what we know into our lives. Even the devil knows the Bible. What you know doesn't matter if you don't apply it. The Bible is God's perfect word. This is more than just some book, guys. This book is is living and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is a perfect word from a perfect God. And so this week, Mission Church, I want you to take up this sword. I want you to take up this sword. This living word and let it guide you. Let it sink deep into your heart. Let it assist you in times of temptation. Let it guard your heart and guide your feet in the Father's will for your life. May you build the foundation of your faith upon the rock-solid, God-breathed Word of God. So Father God, right now we come before you and we say, Lord, you are so kind, Lord. You are so good. Even in our weakness, you give us a tool to better understand temptation and how to fight it, Lord. God, may we realize that this book, this tool, this, this sword that you gave us, Lord, this book is life-giving. Father, maybe there's some here that, that don't have a, a regular time where they're in your word, Lord, and, and I totally get it, God. But Father, I pray, God, that there would be times set apart even now, even today, even this week, Lord, where they would be able to see the life-giving power of this book and your word and a relationship with you. God, thank you. Thank you that in you we will never be disappointed, Lord. That you are infallible. You are completely trustworthy. That your word is a perfect word, that it is an errant, Lord. And that we can build our faith upon the solid rock of Jesus. As the ushers come forward now, Lord, we, we pray over our tithes and offering, Lord. Lord, we give back to you what you have given to us, Lord. For everything we have comes from you is a blessing from you, God. This life is a gift, Lord, and the giver, you, the giver, are good, Lord. So we give back to you now. We pray that you multiply our tithes and offering, Lord. May you fill this time up, Lord, and send it out into the community, Lord, into the lost and hurting, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.